0: why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. And he got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Um, Dear Father, as we just reflect on this, the culmination of your story of your life here on Earth, may we also just wonder and marvel at this mystery of the empty tomb, but also trust and believe that this was your triumphal sign of victory over death, sin, and the curses of this world. May we remember that we have access to the resurrection power and new life here and now in our present day, and not um, and not get distracted by the by living in the in the fallen world that we're still living in, but just continue to put our hope in the fact that you have risen. You are the living God, and that you are empowering us to live in you each and every day. Um, yeah, quiet our hearts as we listen to Nick. As he preaches. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Good morning. It is uh, exciting to be here with you guys this morning as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Um, if, you, uh, if it's your first time or second time, welcome, first of all. But we've been uh, for a series of weeks now exploring the last week of Jesus' life, uh, leading to this moment, to the point of resurrection, and so we've been kind of on a Lenten journey to get to Easter Sunday, and then the next few weeks, as we continue to teach through the scriptures, we are going to continue with what we call Easter tide, kind of like the, the aroma of Easter, what's happening post-resurrection until Jesus ascends. But we are so grateful for you to be here this morning, but I want to start with a story I remember when I proposed to my wife, Jackie, and we immediately celebrated our engagement. When I proposed, we were celebrating our two-year anniversary and she was really excited to give me Brian Regan tickets. And she was so convinced that her gift was gonna be better than mine, knowing that I'm proposing, she's like, I'm going first. I get to give the good gift first. And then whatever I'm gonna give her is surely gonna be a downfall to this like, pinnacle moment of Brian Regan tickets. And so, so I remember proposing to my wife. I remember her saying yes, and then we went and celebrated with a group of family and friends and what began that day for Jackie and for her mother Kim was wedding planning. And what began for me that day was this long period of waiting and not contributing very much at all. For what felt like forever I waited. And after all, in my mind I did not ask Jackie to be my fiance but to be my wife but apparently planning a wedding takes some significant amount of time and so we waited and waited and eventually in the next year we joined in marriage until death do us part and i know you all and i know enough of jesus' resurrection almost as much as you love Reese's peanut butter cup eggs and that's real and they're both good so that's okay Or maybe you're like a middle school or high school or college student waiting to graduate at the end of the school year and move on to the next thing. Or maybe you're in midlife trying to finish like parenting well. Or maybe you're in the throes of parenting just going like grow up not too fast but maybe a little faster. Like all of those tensions that come with life as a parent. Or maybe uh, you're like looking at retirement. And maybe you're wondering and waiting what life on the other side of a career looks like or you're waiting for grandchildren or you're waiting for the next vacation built into the American ethos. We are always waiting for something. We have become somewhat well acquainted with waiting. And while we may not be good at it, it is a necessary life experience that we touch and interact with often. And this is true of God's people historically. God's people have always been waiting. And God's people, we must learn to become good at waiting, but not just waiting for the next thing, but waiting for the right thing. Our eyes not toward the next vacation, but our eyes toward the person of Jesus. Psalm 27, 14 says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. If we are to understand what is going on at this moment in the Scriptures with Jesus' death and resurrection, we must first start with this embodied picture. We must start with waiting, with slow anticipation. Developing not over a day or a week or a month, but over generations and generations and generations of waiting. If you are familiar with the story of the Bible, then you know the beginning starts not with like some statement about science, but a poetic description of a God who creates by speaking and he calls things that he creates good and very good. He's proud of his creation, he enjoys his creation. Think the Garden of Eden is what the scriptures call it, whatever that brings to mind for you. Whole relationships, God creates humanity and there's whole and complete relationships between God and humanity. And each person with one another, complete and unbroken and unmired, healthy and honest and full of self-sacrificial love. This is what the Hebrew word called shalom. We translate that word peace, but peace to us means a bit like I don't feel pressure or conflict right now. That's what peace means. The Hebrew word shalom means so much more than that. It means all things are right in the world. Things are right between God and humanity and one another, and like the lion loves the lamb. Those types of peace, heavenly types of peace, that's, that's what the word shalom really means. And most of us at that point in the story are familiar with what went wrong. We have a book at home called The Biggest Story. It's a, it's a book by Kevin DeYoung, and it's a, a kid's book about the Bible, about the biggest story in human history. And chapter one is about the creation and God created good things, the things I just described. But chapter two is different. And our oldest son, Caleb, I remember reading this book often, our oldest son, Caleb, would always say, I don't like this chapter. Can we skip this chapter? when talking about the fall of humanity away from God, away from Shalom, I think we all would prefer to skip this chapter. Because we know what happens in this chapter. Humanity rebels against God and takes up autonomous authority that we were never intended to have on our own. And as we see through the rest of the Bible, there is like what Tim Mackey of the Bible Project calls this downward spiral that happens from that point in the story. When Adam and Eve take of the fruit, sin enters the world, God's good and very good world, and corrupts it because of humanity's rebellion against God, and then a downward spiral continues. Robert Plantinga, Jr., in his book, Uh, It's Not Supposed to Be This Way, says, God hates sin, not just because it violates his law, but more substantially because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. And humanity's proclivity to sin from this point on, from the fall on, is, is violence against shalom, it's violence against peace, it's violence against God, it's violence even against ourselves from the way we were created to be, created to live. So God's temple on earth, the Garden of Eden, where he chooses to dwell with humanity, where all things are under his reign, influence and control, is violated by sin and rebellion. And God's kingship, God, as king of this place, is subverted. His subjects disobey and pervert themselves and pervert the land, and all seems to be lost. And not just the land or just the people, but quite literally the whole cosmos is thrown out of whack. And again, we see this cycle perpetuate through the rest of the Old Testament. We see them with this with Adam and Eve hiding from God and blaming each other. We see this with Cain killing his brother Abel and then saying, "What am I my brother's keeper?" Yes, in fact you are your brother's keeper. We see this in Genesis 6 when it says that wickedness had become great on the earth. And we see this over and over and over and over this cycle, this perpetual pattern of sin and rebellion against God through the story of Israel in the Old Testament. Israel, these people who have been chosen by God to be blessed, that they might reveal who he is to the rest of the world, they continue to walk in disobedience. They continue to rebel against God. And at this point in the story, it seems like God's kingdom doesn't seem to be going all too well. God's plan to reveal himself, his path to redemption, his path to blessing doesn't seem to be going too well. But also sown in throughout the Old Testament are little seeds of hope that one day things could be different. And this is the like generational waiting in anticipation that we're talking about. That one day things could be like the garden again. In 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10 and 11, it says, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Daniel 4, 3 says, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Or Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And so these promises are inherited to the Jewish people, and this is what builds anticipation of God. One day, when will your kingdom come again? You see, from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, there's been a whisper of a promise that one day God, in speaking to the serpent that deceived Eve, one day will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So from the very beginning of the story and all throughout the story, there is sown into the scriptures intentionally that it could not be missed, this coming one day mark of hope. That one day a king will come and one day the able and good and honest ruler of the earth, they've been waiting for him to come. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And he begins to say things like in Luke four forty three. but he said, speaking of Jesus, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. Or Mark 1:15, the time has come, he said, Jesus speaking, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The long anticipation of the Jewish people has been building for generations, and then a Jewish man shows up on the scene and says, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is near, and I have been sent to tell you, I have been sent to show you that the kingdom of God is here, because Jesus doesn't just utter these words in Luke and in Mark, but Jesus goes on to demonstrate the power of the kingdom. Jesus turns water into wine, a personal favorite of mine. Jesus casts out unclean spirits and demons. Jesus heals lepers and lots and lots and lots of other broken and hurt and diseased people. Jesus raises a little girl from the dead, opens the eyes of blind men, seems to tell the weather what to do, and these are just a few examples of what happens in Jesus' life. These are just a few examples of Jesus' manifestation of the kingdom of God breaking in by the power of the Spirit. But what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God is near, that it's here at least in part. Not in full. One day it will come in full when Christ returns. But Jesus begins to usher in the in-breaking kingdom of God. Jesus is taking broken things, chaotic things, Things that are spiraling downward. And he is making them complete again. He is making the world right again. The inbreaking kingdom of God is about Jesus restoring shalom to the world. Or said differently, Jesus is walking in obedience to the Father and God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. And this, my friends, this is good news. But the difficulty of this good news is that it isn't always felt. This is not our human experience. The bad news of the chapter that we try to avoid is still very present in our reality. The truth is that while Jesus ushered in and established the first movement of the inbreaking kingdom of God that we are now invited to participate in, the truth is that our world is still ravaged by sin and ravaged by evil. So much so that with a war going on in Russia and Ukraine and gas prices going crazy, the housing market off its rocker, children still dying of hunger even though there's enough food in the world, people young and old still going to the doctor and hearing the words it's cancer, or loved ones still passing away, we are left with the question, should I even still hope? Should I even continue to hope? and maybe for you and or been more or helped more was i wrong in how i parented or how i lived or how i spent money whatever it is we all have these questions that are these like let down experiences of life and pain and suffering that we don't know what to do with and for me and my family this week after what's been for many of you a know a couple difficult years of what's felt like continuous pain and suffering or loss at different points in my family's journey. We got away to the beach for a few days. My parents watched our kids, and Jackie and I had some time away, and we had a fantastic and beautiful five days. And then we come home to our young puppy who's 18 months old, and we can't find him. And then we find him laying in the back corner almost dead, needing to be put down for his own sake. And I know that this is like a small picture. I know there's a lot of big things going on in the world, so I don't want to, like, overemphasize the value of losing a dog. But I will tell you, in our family's experience, it was another, like, still God. Like, one more thing like we thought we were done with this season of pain and suffering, and now we have to bury a puppy that we love. One more thing. Why now? Why this? Why this pain again? Why this pain again? Whether, and you begin to wonder and to question whether an almighty and all-powerful God really would allow not just evil and pain and suffering in the world, but this much evil pain and suffering. Or back to the question, should I even continue to hope? But in the biblical story, as Jesus and the kingdom of God continued to grow, And Jesus' popularity continues to grow, the religious elite are deeply frustrated and offended by the things that Jesus says and Jesus does. And Jesus continues to fulfill the reason why he was sent by the Father. He begins to mention to his closest followers after some time in ministry that, hey, just so you know, my death is coming. And this is a totally unexpected reality of the followers of Jesus. They're expecting Jesus in some capacity to quite literally release the Jews from Roman oppression. That's the traditional interpretation of the Old Testament, that that God, that Jesus embodied, the Messiah will free the Jews to have their own land and theocracy again. So the disciples of Jesus carry this expectation And you can imagine early in the story when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, that the disciples go back to the tent and they're like, hey bro, this is it. Like this is happening and we get to be a part of it. He's talking about the kingdom of God that we've been like thinking and our parents and our grandparents have been talking and praying and seeking after for so long. He's going to lead us to rule and to reign to power and freedom again. Even so, in Mark 10, two of Jesus' disciples, uh, James and John, ask Jesus, like they come to Jesus and go, hey, Jesus, will you you do whatever we ask you? Which if you're a parent, you know how like dangerous of a question that is, like it's laughable. So they come to Jesus and say, will you do whatever we ask you? And Jesus says, well, tell tell me what you want. And they ask Jesus, we want to sit to your right and to your left. We want to be enthroned next to you when you rule and reign and power. Jesus, when you take over, can I be your right-hand man? And so from the disciples' perspective, in their hearts, in their minds, they are first in line to rule with King Jesus, the one who will free the Jewish slaves from Roman oppression. That's what they're thinking in their minds at this point in the story. But the cycle of what Jesus has been describing in his coming death and suffering, the cycle begins as we've been exploring these last two months, it gets put into motion. Jesus is betrayed by his close friend, Judas. He gives himself over. Jesus gives himself over to the Sanhedrin, the religious elite of the day. He has falsely testified against and lied about. He is abandoned by his closest friends, those that said they would go to death for him. He is taken to Pilate because Pilate is the only one who can really enact the death penalty. Pilate tries to release him but gives in to the mob and releases a guilty man in his place and condemns an innocent man to death. Jesus is taken by the soldiers, crowned with thorns, mocked, ridiculed, spit upon, tortured, and beaten. He is taken to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and hung on a cross to be crucified by the hands of the Romans. He dies a traitor's death, suffering every moment. And if you were the disciples in this story, you must be wondering, should I even continue to hope? Should I even continue to hope? Back in Luke 24, our reading for today, the women go to the tomb. Always the women, by the way. Well done, women. Keep going. That's not a lowering of men. That is an exaltation of women to keep following Jesus well. The women go to the tomb and rub spices and herbs on Jesus' body to care for it and prepare it. But when they show up, the tombstone is rolled away. In Mark's gospel, the women realize while they're walking, like, how are we going to get this tombstone away? And in my mind, there's always this, like, Peter thinks he comes to the rescue to roll the tombstone away, and he still can't do it, but that's not how the real story goes. So they show up, and the tombstone is rolled away, and there's nobody there, including Jesus' body. There's no human there in the tomb. Luke 24, 4 through 7 says, While they were wondering about this, Jesus' body not being in the tomb, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them, You see, this isn't new information. Jesus has been telling his disciples about his coming death and resurrection for some time. In Mark 9, Jesus speaking, verse 30, he says, "'They left that place and passed through Galilee. "'Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, "'because he was teaching his disciples. "'And he said to them, the Son of Man,' "'speaking of himself, "'is going to be delivered into the hands of men. "'They will kill him, and after three days he will rise.'" But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. But when Jesus dies, the disciples aren't like camping out waiting by the tomb. They aren't preparing a meal for his return. They aren't praying and waiting and fasting. They're overcome with grief. Their deepest wants, desires, and dreams have all vanished. The picture of what they thought this was, a fulfilling of a generational ache from the Jewish people, is no longer a reality. It's all gone. And if not just that, but if Jesus wasn't the revolutionary that we thought he was, then the kingdom of God must not actually be near. What they discover is that in Jesus' words, stories, life, and launch of the inbreaking kingdom of God is not put to death as they thought. But Jesus, the centerpiece of our faith, the centerpiece of our desire, Jesus is raised to life again. Jesus and his kingdom live and breathe. And God is still at work in restoring shalom to the world just like Jesus was. And at the center of this story, our story, is Jesus and his self-sacrificial love to die on a cross for the sins of the world, that the disorder of creation and the cosmos, that all things would be made right again. Because when Jesus died and rose again, he put a death to dying. He did not release the Jews from oppression like they thought, but he released humanity from its enslavement to sin by paying the cost of sin on our behalf. And what this means is that Jesus has saved us. And because Jesus has saved us, it means that sin doesn't have the last word. It means that cancer doesn't have the last word. It means that aging and dying doesn't have the last word. It means that pain doesn't have the last word. It means that loss and suffering doesn't have the last word. It means that Jesus will one day make all things right again in the world. The book of Acts says, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. And we are invited, church, to participate in the advancement of God's kingdom on earth by yielding our life to the ways of the Father, by trusting him, by believing in him. A friend of mine, he was my, my youth pastor, used to tell this story often. There's a gentleman, does anyone know the name Charles Blondin, by chance? Sweet. It's, it's fun telling new stories. So in 1859, there's a guy, Charles Blondin, who's an acrobat tightrope walker. And he strung a tightrope over the Niagara Falls. He was the first person to do this. And so on the first weekend, when he went to go walk across the tightrope over the falls, 10,000 people gathered to come and watch him and see him. And he does his trick, and he lives, and people are amazed, but he realizes, like, I have to add a twist if I'm going to keep people coming. So him and his manager get together and go, let's do this again, but let's add, like, a trick in there. Somewhere, So he starts to tell people he's going to do a trick. More people get bigger the next weekend. He does a trick. Like At one point, he like carries a stove out and makes an omelet and then eats it and then comes back on the tightrope. It's like all the gnarly things that he does. But he's doing this, and people are loving it in anticipation of what he's going to do next is built. And towards the end of the summer, he's going to do his last performance, and they decide we need to do some like finale, some big stunt. And so what they do is Blondin decides that he's going to carry another person. He's going to carry a man. Carry them. Does all the check you would do back in 1859 for this sort of thing. And, and 100,000 people gather to come and watch this experience. And first, he takes a 200-pound sack, and he carries it across just to demonstrate to whoever's going to volunteer that this is something he can do. He's strong enough and able enough to do this. And so the people who were lined up to be volunteers for this event, he goes one by one and asks, do you believe I can carry you across? And everyone says, yes, I absolutely believe. And then he asks, will you let me carry you? And everyone says, there's not a chance I'm going to let you carry me. There is no way I will get on your back and walk across a tightrope over the Niagara Falls. In this, every analogy breaks down, but this analogy is an invitation of trust in the person of Jesus. It's an invitation to like... Non Moses' words and his teachings to have your love and adoration be primarily for God and then flow out from there to the rest of the world. Everyone believes that Baldwin could have carried him across, but nobody will let him. I think that invitation for us today is, is, still, is still true. Like, do you believe? Yes, I believe. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he bodily rose again. No, but will you let him carry you in essence? Will you find your life in him and in him alone? And like me, maybe you have heard the Easter story dozens or even hundreds of times. We spent time with Christ. Because this, friends, this is good news to be believed. And this is good news and an invitation that would you be loyal to Jesus and the good news of the inbreaking kingdom of God? Would you place your hope and trust completely in him and in his ways? Because the reality is, is that healing and justice and love have won the day even if it doesn't always feel like it. That Jesus' words and promises are alive because Jesus himself is alive. And today on Easter Sunday we get to celebrate that Christ is making all things new and one day shalom, the peace of God, will be right again between God and the world and humanity. One day all things will be restored. And so should I even continue to hope And because of Christ's resurrection, because Jesus rose from the grave, because the tomb was empty, we, those who place their hope and trust and dependence and allegiance in the person of Jesus, we have much reason to hope. We don't just place hope in changing circumstances, neither do we just place hope in one day I will die and go to heaven and fully be with Jesus. Those things may be true, but we hope in all of it because of the power of the resurrection. We have hope for today because Jesus is still alive in resurrecting things. Jesus is still resurrecting people. He's still taking people from death to life again. Jesus is still resurrecting and transforming and changing hearts, but we also have hope in what one day is also true, that one day all things will be restored in heaven and earth. Yeah, you can clap. That is good news. Like, that is... That is good news. I want to read Revelation 21. This is the closing story of the Bible. Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. As we wrap up today, we... We have hope because of what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus one day is going to do, and that is much reason to have hope. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for just that. We thank you for all the things you have done, even thinking back to to Sue's prayer earlier, like, Christ, you resurrected me. You gave me new life. We thank you for the work that you accomplished in the cross and at the tomb. We thank you that the story did not end there. That this really, like this really, it really was the beginning of a revolution that changed the world. And it didn't just change the world in a macro sense. Like it actually like calls our hearts to respond to it as well. This is not like passive information, but an invitation to participate in the kingdom of God. And so we thank you that all of that has been accomplished. We stand on the firm foundation that is your grace and love, and we now get to respond with you in participating in God's kingdom, breaking in, in in earth as it is in heaven, or in Bakersfield as it is in heaven. And so God, would you continue to work in our midst, May we continue to experience you and your goodness. And may we have hope because we know the end of the story. We know that love wins. We know that justice wins. We know that grace wins. We know Christ that you win. And so we just yield ourselves and say we belong to you. We find our life, our allegiance in you, to you, Jesus. We love you so much and we thank you. We just receive your love again. We're so thankful for it. We can never say thank you enough. We love you, Jesus. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. If you would join us in standing as we worship.